Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. So far, this podcast has been a coronavirus-free zone. The virus is kind of dominating all aspects of life these days, and sometimes it's good to have an escape. But recently, Professors Jeffrey Jensen and Michael Lynch, both from Arizona State University, published a really interesting comment in Heredity called Considering Mutational Meltdown as a Potential SARS-CoV-2 Treatment Strategy. SARS-CoV-2 being the coronavirus strain that causes the COVID-19 disease, which is currently crippling the planet. This is a really fascinating idea, and one I really want to learn more about. Fortunately, Professor Lynch was able to squeeze in some time to tell me more about his and Professor Jensen's ideas. So, here it is. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. First up, can you just introduce yourself? My name is Michael Lynch. I'm uh, the current director of the Center for Mechanisms of Evolution at Arizona State University. It's a new center that we've recently started uh, that is making an attempt to connect evolutionary biology with cell biology, microbiology, and with a biophysics element thrown in. Perfect. And you're joining me because you recently co-authored a really interesting comment in Heredity on the ongoing coronavirus pandemic called Considering Mutational Meltdown as a Potential SARS-CoV-2 Treatment Strategy. Now, I'm sure everybody listening will know what COVID-19 is, but I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about the virus in general. Well, the virus is a very small group of molecules that is exerting an incredible amount of power on the planet these days. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 in particular is a uh, it's what's called an RNA virus, which genome is made out of uh, single-stranded RNA rather than DNA. There's quite a few RNA viruses out there. COVID 2 is a bit unusual in that it's got a fairly large genome for uh, an RNA virus. Uh, it's about half the genome or so is consist of the components that contribute just to replication of the genome. And uh, we'll probably get back to this, but one interesting feature is that the DNA polymerase in this virus has a uh, proofreading domain. So it's sort of like, you know, Microsoft spell checker. So the polymerase might make some errors and uh, the proofreader will correct a number of these errors. And this is probably one of the main reasons why this particular coronavirus has an unusually large genome for an RNA virus. It's got a relatively low mutation rate, so it can sustain a larger genome size. Yeah, perfect. I'm, I'm sure we will come back to that. That sounds like bad news for us. But I guess one of the things I'm kind of intrigued about here is that the focus of this comment is on a process called mutational meltdown, which sounds incredibly dramatic, but was a bit of a new concept for me. So I wonder if you could tell us exactly what you mean by this. Well, it's actually an idea that we developed back in the late 80s, early 90s for completely different reasons than uh, the subject of our conversation today. So at the time, we were interested in maintenance of... Uh, small populations of endangered species. And the problem with being a small population is you tend to accumulate deleterious mutations fairly easily because the, the noise in the evolutionary process sort of overwhelms natural selection. And so we're in particular interested in trying to figure out time to extinction of populations at different sizes. Particular interest at the time was the longevity of species that never undergo sexual reproduction. The benefit of sex is it enables you to purge a lot of deleterious mutations. 
So this became known as the mutational meltdown because what we showed mathematically was that what will generally happen, you'll get in some steady state, sort of like a ratchet process. So you'll get into this steady state situation where every generation there's a certain probability of the minimum number of mutations in anybody in the population increasing. And once that number increases by one, we say the ratchet has clicked once. And now what used to be the second best class has been advanced to the best class, but eventually that will suffer the same fate. And you'll gradually get this march to an increased mutational load. Uh, that means the average fitness of individuals, let's say survivorship, is declining over time because of this. Eventually get to the point where the average individual in the population can no longer replace itself. So its reproductive rate is offset by uh, too low of a survival rate. At that point, the population size starts to decline. But as the population start size starts to decline, it makes it even easier to accumulate the next round of mutations. That drives the population down further. So you get this snowball effect. That's the phase that we call the mutational meltdown. Eventually, the population can't sustain itself due to mutation load. And it's sort of a synergistic process. So that's where all of this started. What does that have to do with the virus? We also showed that even in enormous populations and viral populations, even in individual human are enormous, uh, we showed that the mutation rate is high enough. Just the sheer pressure of mutation that's coming in will, will offset the ability of natural selection to eliminate mutations. Most mutations are deleterious. So again, this will just drive the fitness down. So we think this strategy can be used almost as a deterministic force to drive, say, a, a pathogen extinct if there was some way to address some kind of biochemical molecular mechanism that would influence the, the mutation rate of your target species, say your target virus species, as opposed, of course, to the host species. Mm, no, it's it's a very fascinating concept. And it's kind of really interesting though, that you're kind of talking about using this to kind of combat the pathogen, because obviously a lot of this sort of theory started with looking at, say, natural populations of sort of more complex organisms. Um, so I wonder how you think mutational meltdown could work in terms of helping us treat people with viral pathogens like SARS-CoV-2? Well, the, you know, there's a lot of work, uh, not surprisingly, uh, not just for SARS-CoV-2, but many, many pathogens. There's all kinds of work looking for simple drugs to target the bug that might affect its biology in any number of different negative ways. One problem with that, of course, is this puts selective pressure on your pathogen so that any mutation that arises that overcomes the drug uh, will rapidly expand into the population. This is why we get antibiotic resistance in bacteria and hospitals and so on. The beauty we think of the mutational meltdown is what's going on here is that you've simply increased the mutation rate throughout the entire genome. So you're not targeting any one specific gene. You're, you're, you're simply uh, developing increased mutation load for every gene throughout the genome. This makes it harder than to evolve resistance. It's possible that one advantageous mutation might come along and then allow the pathogen to recover. But that actually can work uh, in our favor as well, because this will often drag along with it by what we call a selective sweep. It will drag along any linked deleterious mutation. So it's a short-term advantage. But in the long term, you're actually fixing more deleterious mutations in the population. Oh, excellent. And I guess you're kind of talking there, there's quite a lot of research on this on quite a number of pathogens. So 
Has sort of mutational meltdown strategy been used successfully in the treatment of any other viral pathogens? Well, to my knowledge, it hasn't been applied specifically yet in a real clinical setting, but it has been demonstrated in the laboratory in a number of different contexts, including one particular drug, Paravir, that is known to magnify the mutation rate in viruses. And it's been applied in some experiments that one of my colleagues, Jeff Jensen, and his student, Claudia Bank, was involved in. And this, in fact, did uh, increase the mutation rate to such a high level that it drove populations extinct. There have been other people who have talked about uh, this in other viral contexts. Often the words used in the more molecular biology, virology community is the phrase lethal mutagenesis. The phenomenon is essentially the same. No, oh, interesting. And I wonder, with COVID-19, this is currently being explored as a treatment option. And kind of going back to what you said at the start with this proofreading mechanism, how you think mutational meltdown might interact with that? Well, I know there's some small, I've heard uh, about a number of small clinical trials going on in China. At this time, I don't know what the results are. There, things are a bit secretive with respect to COVID-19 research at the moment in China. Uh, but people know about this drug that I just mentioned. There could be very well be other mechanisms as well. I don't know anyone who has yet latched on the idea of actually inhibiting the proofreading domain. But one idea is that uh, if one can inhibit the proofreading domain, that would perhaps get you an increase in the mutation rate at least tenfold. And so almost in one quick step, uh, you would probably be putting the viral genome-wide mutation rate over one per progeny virus. Uh, and that's what you need to really drive something extinct by lethal mutagenesis. Yeah, it sounds as though being able to disable that region might be incredibly beneficial. And I guess you've touched on a few questions that are still outstanding. But at the end of your comment, you mentioned that there's still quite a lot of key questions that need explored before we know if this could be a successful treatment for a virus like SARS-CoV-2. Um, so I wonder what you think the next research step should be here. Well, yeah, I think it's true. There's a number of possible things to worry about. So one is, you, of course, you would want a drug that would specifically target the DNA polymerase or the proofreader of this virus. And obviously, you don't want there to be any associated effects on the host cells, that is, on us. <laughs> uh, so that's something we have to worry about. That's why we do you know, test trials and so on. Probably is, is not a likely issue with this particular proofreading domain that the virus has, but nonetheless, that would have to be checked out. So that would be one big issue. Sure. Uh, resistance. You know, is it true that in reasonable clinical sort of settings that the likelihood of a resistance mutation to any inhibitor of accurate DNA replication is it possible there could be some resistance uh, mutation associated with that? That would require a rather novel polymerase, I guess. So in other words, if the proofreading domain got worse, you could perhaps compensate by uh, improving the polymerase, which is the first stage before you get to the spell checker. So that's another uh, consideration. Overall, the, the approach of this method would be an inpatient cure, right, where we'd be treating an individual for the development of mutation load and driving the virus out of an individual. What becomes quite unclear then is what that means to a population of host individuals, because the, you know the drug would be applied to one individual, not to the population at large. Well, it could be a, you know, applied to many, many individuals, but still you've got transmission going on at the same time. And so 
that's more of a population structure, population genetic question that remains to be evaluated. Mm, no, it's it's very interesting. But I guess you're kind of talking about these ideas that are coming from sort of more traditional population genetics. Yeah. And I wonder if you think there's anything else that researchers should be thinking about at this current time with the pandemic that you think is important to mention. Well, in some sense, it is an evolutionary process. Uh, these RNA viruses have very, very high mutation rates. There's already been dozens, I guess, uh, probably hundreds of genomes of these bugs already sequenced. And so this is a situation in which you're seeing evolution in action on a time scale of you know, only a few months. And so that's one of the reasons I think it's useful to put the whole process in a, a population genetic context. And uh, the mutational meltdown is you know, one aspect of population genetics that I think has real uh, practical implications, even though in this case, we're talking about driving something to extinction, whereas the, the concept was originally developed as a sort of guide to minimizing the risk of extinction. Yeah, I think this is the first time in the podcast we've ever talked about trying to drive something extinct. <laughs> yeah. I guess the other point is that this is a general strategy for eliminating pathogens. We happen to be talking right now for obvious reasons, COVID-19, but in principle, this same strategy could be applied to any bug as long as you had a mechanism that was explicitly targeting the replication fidelity of your bug uh, and has no side effects on the, the host cells. Mm, no, for sure. And I guess I just have one final thing to ask you. I know that you, like a lot of the world right now, are secluded at home. So how are you coping with the pandemic? Is your research still able to progress? Well, that's an interesting question. And so what re aspect of the research you're talking about? I mean, I've been trying to put a positive spin on and take advantage of this time. It's a good for a theoretician because one of our main resources as theoreticians is time to sort of think in an unfettered manner. And uh, we're certainly having, <laughs> having that as a luxury at the time, just locked in our own houses. So it's a good time, in, in fact, to write uh, and even to reflect on science in ways that we, we really don't always have time to. I have a fairly big lab, for example, and when I'm in at work, I'm bombarded with people every uh, few minutes. It's exciting, but it uh, makes it more difficult to sit down and be focused but on the other hand, our labs are pretty much in lockdown mode. So what has been shut down, other than just basic maintenance of biological stocks, is the actual wet lab work that many of the people in my lab like to do. Yeah, so a mixed bag. It's it's good that you're able to find some positives in it and you're able to take this time to kind of have a think and build upon some of your research things. But that's everything that I had to ask. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us and sharing these ideas. It's an incredibly fascinating concept and I hope people do run with it and start researching it in more depth. Thank you very much. Thanks to Professor Michael Lynch for sharing those ideas with us. As part of a wider treatment strategy, mutational meltdown has some real potential when it comes to helping us combat viral pathogens like SARS-CoV-2. I'm really looking forward to seeing if this population genetic theory can have a real epidemiological impact. If you want to read the comment itself, you can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And if you're in the mood for some less pandemic-related genetic content, why not head over to the Genetics Unzip podcast with Kat Arney. Here's a taster of their recent episode. <laughs> Nothing about me without me. It's the rallying cry for patient involvement in research. Research into genetic conditions relies on information from patients and their families, whether that's detailed health records, biological samples or genomic data. 
As the tools and techniques for DNA and data analysis become cheaper and more organisations get in on this fast-growing field, it's vital to make sure that the most valuable research resource, human lives, doesn't get overlooked in the rush. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, recorded at the recent Festival of Genomics in London, we find out why it's so important to make sure that both academic and commercial genomic research studies are done with rather than on participants. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully, you opt into listening to the Genetics Unzipped podcast. But that's us for today. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.